0: Welcome back Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast and this is week number 32. And this week we'll be covering the last half of the book of Isaiah starting with chapter 36 and going all the way to chapter 66 to finish the book of Isaiah. Now, chapters 36 and 39 are a historical interlude of sorts. These three chapters together form a large narrative or story that we also read about in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. But this narrative has a purpose, and that purpose is tied to the word trust that keeps coming up. You see, in chapters 36 and 37, King Hezekiah is put to the test. The Assyrian king Sennacherib comes up against Israel, and he taunts Hezekiah with Assyria's strength and power, so much so that the Assyrian king sends a written letter to Hezekiah to taunt him even more. But in faith, Hezekiah responds by taking the letter and going into the temple and laying it before the Lord in an act of trust in him. And because of this, the Lord intervenes and miraculously delivers Hezekiah and the nation of Israel. Then in chapters 38 through 39, we find that the Babylonian ambassadors come to see King Hezekiah because they wanted to see how the Lord had miraculously healed him and extended his life. And so Hezekiah warmly receives the visitors. Um, These visitors have something in common, um, a shared hatred for the Assyrians. Then in a move of poor judgment, Hezekiah felt it necessary to show these Babylonian emissaries all of his wealth, all of his military resources. This, is, this expressed a desire to share these resources with an ally who might help Judah in opposing Assyria. Therefore, King Hezekiah's acts demonstrated trust in Babylon, excuse me, yes, trust in Babylon and reliance on her for safety rather than in the Lord. And so Hezekiah fails the test of trusting in God alone in these chapters. Failure to trust in the Lord had dire consequences for Hezekiah because some of his descendants would later be taken captive to Babylon. This became true of the king's physical descendants, his son Manasseh, King Jehoiachin, and King Zedekiah. It also became true of many of Hezekiah's people, his children in that sense, when Nebuchadnezzar carried three deportations of Israelites off into Babylon. Now, moving on to chapter 40, and from this point onward, Isaiah leaves the discussion of judgment because of Israel's failure to trust, and now speaks about restoration and deliverance to come. The break in the content between chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66 is so dramatic, it's caused some authors or some scholars to believe that the book was written by two different authors. But we don't spouse to that. We believe it was all written by one person named Isaiah. Now, the first section of the second part of Isaiah— is chapters 40 through 48. And these chapters speak about God's deliverance. Judah's soon coming captivity in Babylon will come to an end. God's intent for Israel was that she be a light to the nations, a light that would draw all the nations to Israel to learn about the one true God, Yahweh. But she failed in her task. Time and time again, she failed and she demonstrated how not to trust in the Lord. But God's purposes are not thwarted or changed. God is faithful to his promises. And after the discipline for her unfaithfulness has run its course, course, and that discipline would be 70 years of exile in Babylon, after it's run its course, she will be graciously restored. Israel would continue to have a glorious future, not because of but in spite of herself. And so in chapter 40, we read that she, that just because Israel would go into exile in Babylon doesn't mean that God could not deliver his people. Rather, it shows even more clearly that God is sovereign and that people can continue to trust in him to deliver them because God is the sole ruler of the universe. He can be trusted to deliver his people or any people for that matter. And so this chapter reads like a psalm that details why we should trust in God. Those who relied on their own physical strength would fail, but those who trusted in God would find their strength renewed by him so they could soar on wings like eagles famous verse there in the end of chapter 40 now in chapter 41 we read that not only is god all powerful and sovereign and worthy of trust but in chapter 41 here he controls history this shows that his love for israel would last well well beyond the exile. Israel did not need to fear the nations because God remained committed to his people and would use them to accomplish his purpose in the world. So this expression of grace and mercy would have encouraged and motivated Israel to serve the Lord. Now let me just add this one note. You'll see the word servant a lot through the second half of Isaiah. You need to understand this term servant in two different ways. First, Israel was to be God's servant, the nation in whom would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They were chosen by God to be his servant and bring blessing to the world. We often use the phrase, Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. This was their calling in the world, what God called them to do, way back with the calling of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. So in one sense, Israel is a servant nation. Secondly, however, Israel would also produce the model servant one who would come to perfectly fulfill what God desired for his people to accomplish, and this would be the Messiah, or this would be Jesus. or We oftentimes call him the suffering servant, as related to Isaiah 53. So even though Israel did not function as the most ideal servant, God still used the nation of Israel to produce the model servant, the one who would die for the sins of the world. He, Jesus, being from the nation of Israel, would bless all nations through Israel. So the term servant can be viewed collectively as speaking of Israel and of Jesus individually, whom Isaiah later calls the suffering servant. As you move into chapter 42, Isaiah begins to develop the theme of the servant of the Lord. While God originally intended Israel to be his servant, the nation never met those expectations. Isaiah developed a profile of the ideal servant that soon narrowed to a single individual who would die on behalf of all others. We find that in chapter 53 with Jesus. And so God identified this individual as my servant, my chosen one. God empowered by God's spirit, the servant's task is to bring justice to the nations and to be a to the Gentiles. The servant will succeed where the nation of Israel had failed. And so a new song of praise will be sung to the Lord for the victory He will accomplish through His servant. And while God's servant, the Messiah, will open the eyes of the blind, God chastised His servant Israel for being spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. They had been called to be His messengers, but their spiritual insensitivity brought them to ruin. And so the servant Messiah obeys God and fulfills his task, but the servant Israel refuses to listen to God and draws God's judgment after him. And even though Israel had failed to learn from the Lord, he would still deliver them out of pure grace. And that's what chapter 43 is about. Becoming more specific, God declared that he would judge the Babylonians for their oppression of his people. God promised to provide Israel a guide or a way in the desert to sustain them As they traveled back from captivity, were they grateful? No, they weren't. Though the Lord was eager to forgive, the people were ironically unwilling to repent, even after being in captivity for so long. God had not imposed a heavy burden on his people, but ironically his people have burdened him with their sins. God assured them that he would sustain them. Chapter 44 tells us that God would pour out his spirit upon them, that his promises to them would be far superior than any idol of man. And that while other people made their, made their gods, he promised to remember them because he made them. Do you see the grace of God all over these pages in Isaiah here? It's everywhere, it seems. It's all around the people, but their eyes are so blinded to seeing it. The Lord was going to bless Israel despite what she did. Now in chapter 45, we find that God used a pagan ruler named Cyrus to restore his people back to their land. That's right. God uses whomever he wants to accomplish his purpose, even a pagan ruler. In their first exodus, God used Moses, but now God will do a new thing. He will use Cyrus. In chapters 46 and 47, Isaiah speaks about the impotence of Babylon's gods. Bel and Nebo are two of the patron deities of Babylon. In contrast to Babylon's false gods, God reminded his people he had upheld them since conception and carried them along since birth. He had done so much for them. Because Babylon had oppressed Israel severely, judgment was sure to come against Babylon. No idol or sorcerer or astrologer could save Babylon from judgment. Now chapter 48 continues to carry on the theme of the Lord's controversy with idols, and more specifically about Israel's stubbornness. And you find a lot of talk about idols in the book of Isaiah as well. While idols were very much physical images created to worship other gods with, the principle behind idolatry is the heart. And so when Israel was idolatrous, her heart was led away to follow other gods. And following those other gods only got her into more and more trouble. Now, this goes back to the journey into the promised land. Remember, God wanted Israel to drive out all the inhabitants lest she falls prey to worshiping their gods and their idols. A servant, there's the word again, can only be loyal to one master. God wanted Israel to be loyal to him, but they consistently chose other gods. But still, God continued to use them despite their disloyalty to him. You know, in the same way, our hearts can be led away from Christ by the idols that we keep close to us. Why would Israel want to trust in an idol that is worthless and cannot help them in any way? I guess we could ask ourselves that same question. Why do we trust in other things to accomplish only what God can do? This just reminds us of the power of sin and how we must not take the battles that we fight with sin lightly. We must enlist the help of the Holy Spirit whom God has placed within us to help us each day with the battle over sin. One day, and I'm looking forward to that day, our war with sin will be over, and we will be finally able to rest and fully and completely enjoy Christ for all eternity. Now chapter 49 brings us to a new section, a larger section of Isaiah. Chapters 49 through 55 are mainly concerned with God's deliverer, that is, how he would provide a sacrifice for sins. This is another exodus, a redemption from sin that the servant would make possible. God will provide a deliverer in and through the ideal servant, or in this case, Jesus the Messiah. This servant will be everything that God intended Israel to be. In chapter 49, the servant of the Lord is commissioned with the task of gathering Israel to himself and to be a light to the Gentiles. You can see that reference also in Luke chapter 2, verse 32. In chapter 50, we find that Israel's disobedience brought judgment. And in contrast to Israel, the servant here, Jesus, was not rebellious. Even in time of persecution, he willingly turned his back to those who beat on him compare this with Matthew 27 verse 26 through 31 the servant called on Israel to continue to trust in God even in times of distress that's what Jesus did those who refuse to do so and rely on their own abilities will ultimately will face torment now in chapter 51 God tells Israel to listen Three times we find this idea of listen in this passage. Listen and remember what God has done. Listen and remember who God is. Listen and remember what God has promised. Then continuing in chapter 52, God calls on Israel to wake up three different times. Wake up to the power of God. His power is not changed. Wake up to the purpose of God. He has a plan for you. Wake up to the peace of God. He will not not abandon you. Sounds like a good three-point sermon um, right there but Israel had to wake up. They had to listen. That brings us to the best and most favorite part of the entire book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 is divided into four parts, the servant's rejection, the suffering servant, the servant's death, and the servant's reward. Most of the approximately 80 references to Isaiah in the New Testament come from this chapter alone. Books have been written on this entire chapter. So instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, take the time to read this chapter slowly. And as you're reading it, think about the life of Christ. In particular, the Passion Week leading up to the death of Christ. See how many similarities you can find in Isaiah 53 with the life and ministry of Christ. Now because of what the servant has accomplished in chapter 53, Israel can now be redeemed. God promises with great compassion that he will take back his formerly abandoned wife. And just as he made a covenant with Noah not to destroy the world again with another universal flood, so he would also keep his promise to spare humankind the judgment of separation from him again. He would neither flood them with his anger nor rebuke his people. Wow, that's powerful. Now, in Isaiah 55, we find God's grace on its richest display. God offered to make an everlasting covenant with those whom would come to him. And you know what? It's free. (laughs) The work of the servant, the work of Jesus, made relationship with the holy God possible. It does not cost us anything, but it cost God greatly. It cost him the sacrifice of his son. We might never fully understand or comprehend the why of salvation. All we can do is simply accept it. And this is why, as it says in this text, that God's ways are far above our ways and his thoughts are far above our thoughts. To us, to our human minds, it just doesn't make sense. Now, the last section of Isaiah is chapters 56 through 66. And these chapters speak to Israel's future transformation. Isaiah deals with the necessity of living out the righteousness of God. These chapters emphasize the servant of the Lord, what the servant of the Lord should be. God had redeemed them so they could demonstrate his righteousness in their lives in the world. But how does the sermon demonstrate righteousness, we might ask? How is it lived out in their lives? Well, according to chapters 56 through 59, living out righteousness comes when we recognize our own human inability. It's impossible for us to live out righteousness without divine enablement from the Lord. And so in chapter 56, we find that a person, no matter if they are a foreigner or not, who is in a right relationship with God, seeks to please him seeks to follow the law, seeks to properly observe the religious feasts and fast days, seeks to love God with all their heart. Because of what the ultimate servant Jesus has done for us, we too should desire to please Jesus by committing and working at keeping our relationship with Him vibrant and strong. Now chapter 57 tells us that Israel's leadership fell prey to thinking that their positions and ability kept them in relationship with God. And because of this, there was a widespread departure of the nation from God, she turned, um, she turned back to idols. And this description of what happens in this chapter might possibly be the atmosphere during the reign of King Manasseh, one of the horrible reigns. Nonetheless, the people were to practice humility and holiness, and they could not do this on their own, as it's clearly evidenced. Now, if Israel doesn't know what God wants or how He expects them to live out righteousness, chapters fifty-eight and fifty-nine clear it up for them. You see, God explained that they were hypocritical in their worship. The way they fasted, how they kept the Sabbath, the continued violence and injustice that pervaded the culture. Israel's problems were not caused by God's inability. His arm was not too short to reach out to them or his heart too dull to hear their cries for help. God says, you, Israel, you are the problem. Verse 3 of chapter 59 is like God pointing his finger at the people and laying the blame directly on them. It was their sins that separated them from God and kept God from responding to their pleas for help. And so finally, the Lord himself decides to take action. Verse 15 of chapter 59 says it best, and I'm reading from NLT, when it says, "...the Lord looks and was displeased to find that there was no justice." And because of this, the Lord steps onto the scene as a divine warrior who will fix all the injustice. These last few verses of this chapter kind of transport us to the imagery we find in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, at the second coming of Christ. After the second coming of Christ, Jesus will set up the millennial kingdom wherein he will be seated as king. And guess what? True justice will prevail. There will be no more injustice, but true justice will prevail you know, Even as, as much as Israel tried and failed and as much as we today try and fail, injustice is something that we cannot completely destroy without the direct intervention of God. Today we have a helper called the Holy Spirit who helps us in the task of doing justly. But one day, and that will be a glorious day, Jesus himself will step onto the stage of the world at his second coming. Judgment will be rendered against the enemies of God, and justice will prevail as Jesus sits on the earthly throne. This is the hope that we look forward to in a world where injustice is seen everywhere. This is the hope that sustained the nation of Israel, and this is the hope that ought to sustain us as well. Now, moving on to chapters 60 through 62, these chapters present Israel as the restored people of God, displaying salvation to the earth. Being the light that she was intended to be and fulfilling all that God wanted her to be. This is descriptive of that millennial kingdom that will take place on earth after the second coming of Christ. There are several themes that run through these chapters. Let me list a few of them for you as you read through. God will save Israel. God will give Israel light. God will share his glory with Israel. Israel will draw the nations to God. The nations will bring back the Israelites to Jerusalem. The nations will bring their wealth to Jerusalem. God will exalt Israel over the nations. Israel will exemplify um, and experience God's righteousness. Jesus will set the Israelites free from their captivity to sin. All these things, all those themes will happen in that millennial kingdom, but before this can happen, Christ must come back first for his second coming. This leads us right into the first six verses of chapter 63, and we find a picture of the Messiah, the divine warrior coming to earth in the second coming and defeating all of his enemies. And then at verse 7 of chapter 63, there is a break. Isaiah moves from the subject of God's deliverance to Israel's prayer. And I think the main question here is if the Lord was capable of defeating Israel's enemies, then why had he not acted for Israel already? God's commitment to his people had led him to discipline them for their sins as well as to deliver them in their need. Consequently, a change in Israel's rebellious attitude toward God was the key to their experiencing his blessing again. He did not need to change. They did. Still, in chapter 64, Isaiah requests God to intervene on behalf of his people because of his covenant faithfulness. In spite of their sin, God was still their father. He was the master potter and the people were the work of his hands. Would God show no compassion? Would God not do something of a situation that reflected so negatively on him and his promises? This is what Isaiah asks. Well, in chapters 65 and 66, explain God's response. Again, God's response and reasons are based upon what the people did. Here's the issue. The Israelites felt that their rituals of worship should have resulted in God's blessing, or at least his responding to them when they prayed. They failed to appreciate that God dictates how people should worship him because he is God. They felt that because they worshiped him, they should, he should respond as they wanted, even though they worshiped him in unacceptable ways. We come to God on His terms and not our terms. That's the understanding. Judgment would have to be rendered on those who worshiped idols and other gods, but He would spare those who remained faithful to Him. A godly remnant would be preserved from among His people who would inherit the promises to the patriarchs regarding the land and the kingdom. Now in chapter 65, verse 17, to the end of the book, looks beyond um, the millennial kingdom to the Lord's new creation. And the last two verses of Isaiah end with a reference to two destinies. Those who put their trust in God will experience his redemption and glory and will endure, just as the new heavens and new earth that I make will endure. But those who reject the Lord and oppose his plans will experience enduring judgment. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched. It sounds like we're picturing what John says here of the two destinies we find in Revelation chapter 20. So we've come to the end of the book. What's the lesson? Even though Israel failed to trust God and his plan time and time again, God was still gracious to them. Even though we have put our trust in Christ as our Savior, we also have times of unfaithfulness. But God still remains faithful. His faithfulness to us is based on the promises we have in Christ. Really, the book of Isaiah is a deep dive, a rich exploration, an overturning of every rock of God's grace to us. May we not take it for granted, and may we trust him more each and every day. Well, that's all that we have for this week. Next week, we'll start a brand new book. We'll start the longest book in the Bible, Jeremiah. Now, email any questions you might have to biblereading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.